Please be seated. Our scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 2 for the sermon. I'll invite you again in your Bibles to turn turn to Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 41 through 52 of Luke chapter 2. Hear the word of the Lord. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. This is actually the only story about Jesus' childhood recorded in any of the Gospels, besides, you know, the flight to Egypt. For whatever reason, the Gospel writers were content to leave almost 30 years of blank space in Jesus' life. And this passage shows us a rare glimpse of Jesus at a young age, and in fact contains the very first recorded words of Christ. We also know that Luke, the author of this Gospel, placed a high emphasis on eyewitness accounts, In fact, in Luke chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, we learn that this gospel is an orderly account of the evidence of the life of Jesus, including eyewitnesses. It's also the third time in the gospel of Luke that we learn about people, quote, laying up memories in their heart or treasuring memories. Those who heard about John the Baptist did it in chapter 1, verse 66. Mary also treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart uh, in uh, chapter 2, verse 19 after the shepherds visited her. And then again, in our passage today, in verse 51, Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. It makes a lot of sense that a man going and collecting eyewitness accounts would find memories that were treasured in the heart, memories that were very dear, because those would be ones you remember a very long time. And that might be one one reason why Luke included this and the other writers did not. But all this to say, the account found here of Jesus is a 12-year-old boy is not some legend, It's a vivid, particular memory of Mary, recorded by Luke, so that we may have certainty concerning the things we've been taught about Jesus. So what does this passage show us about Jesus? That's really the question. Even as a 12-year-old boy, why was this story so precious to Mary? Why did Luke decide to include it? These are my questions this week as I was studying this text. And verse 41 gives us a hint of how we can begin to answer them. It tells us what was going on in verse 41. Jesus and his family went to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. Now, you probably know that Jews were required to go to Jerusalem several times a year. And Jesus' family went regularly for Passover. Um, And by the way, do you know what they did on their way to Jerusalem? 
they sung the Psalms of Ascent. Remember, Pastor Ben just finished his series on the Psalms of Ascent, and likely Jesus and his family were singing those very Psalms on the way to Jerusalem. And Luke, the author of this gospel, makes the point that they are going to the Feast of Passover to show us that Mary and Joseph are devout. They're law-abiding Jews. They're not casual. They, They take their faith seriously. They do what's required of them. We also see this earlier in the chapter in verse 22. They presented Jesus to the temple in keeping with Jewish law. So they're doing the things that God requires them as good good members of the covenant. We also learn in verse 42 that Jesus is now 12 years old. It's a very important age. At 12, a Jewish boy became a son of the law with the responsibilities of a man, putting on the phylacteries, which were those little leather boxes with scripture in them that they would wear on their head and the left arm. Those served as the reminder to the wearer that they have an obligation to keep God's law. It was no longer just underneath their parents. You have to follow the law now yourself. Only men were actually required to go to Jerusalem for all these feast days. And now that Jesus is 12, he as a man, according to the law, has an obligation to go as well. And in verse 43, we see that the Passover is over. His parents head home, but somehow Jesus stays behind in Jerusalem. Now, before you think that Mary and Joseph were bad parents, here's what you need to know, okay? It would have been easy for Mary and Joseph to think that Jesus was with them still because the way people traveled back then was in a very long caravan. It wasn't just like they were in a family unit. They weren't all packed into the family sedan, if you will. They're stretched out, a long group, not just one or two people, multiple families. And normally the the women and the small children were at the front of the caravan, and the men would have been at the back. And remember, Jesus was that in-between age. He's 12 years old. He had probably just come into his manhood. His parents could easily have thought he was with the other one. Mary could have thought he was with Joseph. Joseph thought he was with Mary. However, it happened, though, Jesus stayed in Jerusalem while Mary and Joseph headed for home thinking he was with the other. Uh, Maybe they thought he was with the cousins in the middle. You know how it goes at family events, right? You've been to a big family gathering, a big feast on Thanksgiving. Everybody's there. You're like, where's, what's my child's name again? You know, you, okay, right. Same kind of thing. They're not bad parents. They just misunderstood where Jesus was. Eventually, though, they figured out he was missing, and they searched for him. In fact, they had to head back to Jerusalem to look for him. Now, I've never lost a child. Uh, Lord, fortunately, I've never lost a child, uh, or lost one for three days, uh, for, for that matter. But I can imagine that was a stressful event, losing a child. One day out from Jerusalem when they left, one day traveling back, and one day searching for him. Three days total, Jesus was lost. And when they finally found Jesus, he was at the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking questions, and everyone who heard was amazed at his understanding and his answers. And the first thing I want you to notice of this passage, I'm only going to give you two things to notice if you're a note-taking type. So really only two points, if you will. The first one is this, Jesus is no ordinary boy. At the temple where Jesus was found, they had spacious porches out front, and teachers would set up class. And remember, this was right after the Passover, and Passover, you'd have like, everybody would come into town, all the famous teachers, all the famous rabbis from all over, and so it was like a great spectacle, no matter where you were, lots of food and other things, but if you were into good teaching, that's where you wanted to be. And so many of them were probably still in town, still teaching, still setting up shop, And verse 46 tells us that the Jewish teachers, these rabbis, and all who were with them were amazed at the understanding and the answers of a 12-year-old boy. 
That ought to make us scratch our head a little bit. No offense to 12-year-olds. Any 12-year-olds here? Okay, we like you, we love you. 12-year-olds aren't normally known for their understanding and their answers being wise. Jesus is a 12-year-old boy. Again, not to be flippant, but he's not educated. He doesn't know his alphabet. Uh, He probably doesn't know how to read or write. His father Joseph wouldn't have taught him that. His father Joseph was teaching him how to be a carpenter, and yet everybody is amazed that Jesus is like understanding. He's answering. He's questioning. He's he's engaging in a way that people say, that's not normal. That's kind of special. And what this passage shows us is the very first glimpse of Jesus' divinity from the evidence of his life. Not just from what people have said before he was born, but from his life itself, the facts surrounding it. We can see the beginning of his divinity showing. There's nothing more profound than realizing that Jesus is not an ordinary boy, but God incarnate. And this has incredible impl- implications. I mean, we, we, we take these kind of doctrines for granted. We say things like, you know, Jesus is God, and, you know, we, we, we become so familiar that we kind of lose sight of how awe-inspiring it is to say that God became man. Think about the implication. Because Jesus is fully God, that which Jesus does and says is as if God the Father does it. When Jesus offers forgiveness, teaching, revelation, it is from God because Jesus is God. There is a unity between the Father and the Son that is just beyond our comprehension. In fact, if you think you understand it, you don't because you've understood it in finite terms. It's a mystery. In Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's not half God or a person that God merely put himself into. He's not a human shell with God at the controls. He is God. My son Colin got a, one of his Christmas presents this year was a giant Lego man. You know the Lego minifigures? Well, they make a giant one. It's about this big. It's giant for Lego, okay? It's about this big. And uh, in, the Lego guy's wearing a hat. And you can actually, the hat kind of swivels and opens. And inside the hat is a normal-sized Lego guy who's like at the controls, as if he's controlling the giant-sized Lego guy. It's really cool. If you're into Legos, uh, which I kind of am, as you can tell, it's a fun set. If you buy it, you won't regret it. But I think that's how a lot of people think of Jesus, that he's like a human shell with God at the controls, like driving him around. Um, But that's totally the wrong picture that Scripture tells us. Jesus is equal in power, substance, and authority to God the Father and is eternally begotten of the Father. I mean, it's one of the reasons why we say the creed, and it's such an important thing, the repetition of saying the creed. You have good theology seeped into your mind. If you just attend worship here and you confess your faith weekly, you have that of who Jesus is. When the Son does something, he does not just do it with the Father's authority or blessing, but it as as if the Father is doing it as well. And I know that's confusing, and it should be, but it's true. Jesus does not just represent God or speak with his authority. He is fully God, even as a 12-year-old boy. And here, we get the first ray of sunshine of the dawn of his divinity being revealed to mankind. Jesus is no ordinary boy because he's God, but let's also keep in mind he's very human, very human. He had a childhood. That's one reason why I love this passage. And I love preaching on it after Christmas, by the way, right? Christmas time, we're like, he's a baby, you know, all those things, the manger. And then we kind of just move on to Easter. But I love this because this is the one passage that gives us a glimpse of his childhood, and it fits so well in the calendar year right here. 
Jesus didn't go from a baby straight to a 30-year-old man with a beard. He, like all children, had to grow up. He had to learn to speak, to walk. He was not born as an adult who knew all things. If we see this in the fact that even in our passage, he's sitting at the feet of teachers. It's profound. The God of the universe is sitting at the feet of teachers. It's because he's human. He has to learn things. Just like you and I have to learn something. Even though he's fully divine, he needed to learn from them. And that makes sense because humans have to learn. I have to learn. You have to learn. He is human fully. Verse 47 says they were astonished by his answers, which also means he wasn't the one teaching. He was, he was listening. He was learning. We also know that Jesus suffered all the frailties that you and I suffer. Presumably he was sick at times, hungry, tired, weary, happy, sad, and yet all these things, all of them without sin. Yet Jesus is no ordinary boy. We can see that clearly here. The second thing we can see from this passage is he has a unique relationship to God the Father. Now, that's kind of like an obvious thing because I just, you know, spent a couple minutes talking about how Jesus is God and man. He's the God-man. So it makes sense he would have a unique relationship to Heavenly Father. But let's not go past this. When his mom finds him and sees him at the temple, she asks him this in verse 48. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Or as the Greek here could be translated, they were searching for him in anguish and pain. Seems like a reasonable question, right? You know, when I was five or six years old, I can't remember exactly, uh, I went to Walmart. And I know Walmarts are not like a big thing in New York. Um, we have some around, okay. But I grew up in the Midwest. Walmarts, you were in a Walmart like three times a week, okay. And I went there with my mom, and somehow I got separated from her probably because I went to go look at the Lego section and she went to go buy groceries. But however it happened, I turned around and I'm there without a parent in sight, a five or six-year-old Ben. Eventually, I wandered up to the front and a clerk asked me if I was lost. And the next thing I heard over the loudspeaker over the entire store was, would the mother of Ben Shear please come to customer service? I will never forget the look on my mom's face as she came sprinting to the front of the store to retrieve me. Worry and anguish were painted over her face. You know, any mom, any parent would be in great pain and anguish if you lost a child. And yet, consider Jesus' answer to his mom when she asked him this question. He says this in verse 49. Why were you looking for me? Did, did you not know I must be in my father's house? Isn't that a strange way to answer the question? I mean, it's actually rather typical for Jesus. Again, these are the first words recorded we have, but we, you know, those of us who have read the Gospels and know the narrative of his life kind of say, yeah, that's how Jesus answers questions. That's kind of what he does. Uh, for example, he just doesn't, you know, play along in conversation with people the way they want him to. Remember later on in Luke, we see the rich young ruler coming up to Jesus and he says to him, good teacher, what must I do to inher inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? He gets right to the heart of the person asking. It's very rare for Jesus to ever answer a question in a simple, straightforward way, or at least he doesn't answer people's questions based on their terms. He answers maybe what really is the issue at hand. And the same is true with Mary in her question to her son here. Even as a 12-year-old boy, Jesus cuts to the chase. Now, remember, he was just praised for his understanding. Surely he understands the concern his mother has. 
You know, there really are only three logical conclusions we can make about how Jesus responded to his mom. The first would be that Jesus is being snarky. I, I don't think that's the answer, though. Jesus is God. He's perfect. He's not going to be uh, rebellious to his mom. This goes against what we know about him. And it, it even tells us at the end of the passage that he goes home submissive, and he grows in wisdom and stature. So that option doesn't work. The second option could be that Jesus just doesn't understand Maybe he doesn't get why his mom would be, you know, worried about him as a lost kid. But, you know, when I I was lost, I understood my mom was worried for me, and I'm, you know, much younger and and don't have near the wisdom, obviously, of Jesus. So that doesn't make sense. Can't be that option. The third option is Jesus is making a point. I think that fits. The implication in his question is that she should have known where he would be. He's making a point. That's the pattern of Jesus, answering questions with a question to make a point. Jesus said, why are you looking for me? Because you should have known where I would be. In fact, if you'll turn over to Luke chapter 1. So it's just a page over in your Bible if you have it. If you don't, you're going to have to just listen to me read it. I'm going to read Luke chapter 1, verse 30 through 33. Again, I'll give you a second. If you have your Bible, it's just one page, an easy flip. Or actually, two pages of mine. apologize. Luke chapter 1, verses 30 uh, through 33, it says this. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. We've got to go back to Christmas for a minute, right? The angel told Mary what her child would be like. He would be no ordinary boy. He would be great. He would be the son of the Most High. He Literally, God said, I will give him the throne of his father, David. It's not implied. It's explicit. Mary, your son will be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant as promised in 2 Samuel 7, verses 13 and 14. Do you remember what David was promised in his covenant? I'll read you just a snippet of it. 2 Samuel 7, 13 and 14, God promised David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. That's what God promised the line of David would be, a father's son on the throne forever. And Mary, in no uncertain terms, was told that Jesus was the fulfillment of God's promise in the Old Testament to David. Her mind should have exploded. My son is going to be the fulfillment. Yeah, and you're going to name him Jesus, and he's going to be that boy. Mary was told this. You know, let's give Mary a little slack, though. She probably was only 15 or 16 years old when she had Jesus. She was very young. We don't know exactly. Not much, uh, not, not much of a life experience on, as far as how old she was. And, but it wasn't just once Mary was told how special Jesus was. Remember, after Jesus was born, some shepherds came to visit, and they told Mary in chapter 2, verse 17, all the things the angels had told them. A bunch of shepherds randomly showed up at her door and said, we just saw angels. You won't believe what they told us about your son. What, who he's going to be and what he's going to do. The point is this. Mary had been told who Jesus was. 
She knew he was the son of the Most High. She knew the birth of Jesus was a virgin birth and that the baby, baby was divinely conceived. She knew that his father was Yahweh. And yet amidst her concern for her son seemingly being lost, she forgot these things. And Jesus says to her, did you not know? Or to put it like a Christmas song, Mary, did you know? She did know. You know, I, I, again, all speculation in my part, but I kind of wonder where else she looked for Jesus before going to the temple, right? Because she spent a day looking. We don't know if it was a couple hours of the day or the whole day, but the playground, the mall, you know, the market, where, where would you look for a 12-year-old boy who stayed behind in Jerusalem? And those would make sense for a normal boy, but not Jesus. Jesus had to be in the temple. Jesus had to be eating spiritual food, hearing about his father, hearing scripture, being taught of the things of the Lord and his law. You know, our earthly concerns, even when they're valid, they, they kind of have a way of muting or turning down the volume on our spiritual life and knowledge. And that's what happened with Mary. Her concern for her son, it's a valid one, where's my son? But it caused her to just forget things that she had been, supernatural revelation been told about Jesus. Just went out the window. Turns down the volume on our spiritual life when we have earthly concerns. Do you remember the parable of the sower? It's in Matthew 13. You know, the parable, different types of seed, and some of it gets, you know, snatched away. Some of it's on rocky soil. Um, but it tells us this in Matthew 13. The worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word. They choke it. You ever have the word choked? You've been taught a lot of things. So have I. Doesn't mean I live the way I should. Doesn't mean I remember all those things. At least not in a sense of living them in my life, maybe academically. I think so often the reason why is because we have worries in this life. Or maybe we're seeking the deceitfulness of wealth. It's, sin is deceitful. Other pursuits that are world, worldly and are, are, you know, in this realm alone, they're deceitful. They trick us into thinking they're giving us something good, but they're not. And the end result is they choke the word in our life. It's trying to grow and flourish and put roots and eventually produce fruit. And yet these things just choke it like a plant without sun. The concerns we have about what we will eat, drink, do, or get become so loud that they drown out spiritual realities. And Mary here is gently reminded by her son, whose wisdom is inexplicable even at 12 years old, that which she has been told. And it is a reminder that we need to hear as well. You know, when I was thinking about this passage this week, I, I, I kind of just was brainstorming what things have I maybe been told about Jesus that I've forgotten. Right? Again, I've been to seminary and this and that, so you, I guess I've been taught a lot of things. Again, it doesn't necessarily make, doesn't do me better spiritually just because you know things, right? Things that we forget because we're concerned about this world or because maybe you're feeling worn down by the daily grind or family strife or parenting or dissatisfaction in marriage or maybe you're not married and you want to be, or there's thorns and thistle of your work, or Long Island traffic, right? All these things are just the noise and the worries and the concern that can choke the word when you feel pulled in every, every direction by the obligations you have. So what things have you been told and forgotten? Maybe this, maybe that, that what Jesus told us at the end of Matthew is true, that he will be with us always until the end of time. That's a true thing. How about this one? Have we forgotten that all who trust in him, that is Jesus, 
are truly forgiven and your sins are as far as the east is from the west. Or this one. This one convicts me. Prayer works. Prayer works. We're called to pray. We're called to pray without ceasing, to have an attitude, a pattern of life that is prayer. Or how about this one? The Bible is God's word. The Bible is God's word. How would we treat this if we really had that knowledge in our head all the time as we go about our daily life? Maybe we wouldn't be as casual with it. I don't know. Have we forgotten that this world is not all there is, that Jesus is coming back to judge the quick and the dead, and that all of this, all these things around us, as valuable as they can be, are only temporary? Have we forgotten these things like Mary forgot who Jesus was? But there is a little bit more going on here than, than Jesus being separated from his, fa- his family and that Mary forgetting what she knew. As we move on to the last part of this message, I want you to notice the contrast between verse 48 and verse 49. In verse 48, Mary says, Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And in verse 49, Jesus says, Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? You catch it? Your father and I, and Jesus says, I'm in my father's house. He's drawing a line there. Again, not rebellious. He's not, he's not over the line. But he's drawing a line, and he has chosen this moment as a 12-year-old, now son of the law, this crucial stage in his life at the beginning of his manhood to tell his parents in an unforgettable way that he knows who his heavenly father is and what it will mean for his mission on earth. He's aware. He knows that he is not an ordinary boy. And when Jesus says, I must be in my father's house, the wording in the original language mean, means he has to. He necessarily must. Like, like he has to breathe or eat food. Like it's a compulsion he cannot resist. I, by my nature, must necessarily be in my father's house. I have to go there and be near him and, 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 and commune with him and learn. I must And from this point forward in Jesus' life, we see him increasingly talk about his father and the relationship he has with him. For example, he says, no one knows the father but the son. He says, I am sent by the father in John 20. He says, if you know me, you know the father. And even at the end of his life with his dying breath, what does Jesus do? He commits his spirit to his father. It's all about the father for Jesus. And his words to his mom that he must be in his father's house show that he is no ordinary boy and has a unique relationship to God the Father. You know, the main teaching of this passage is that Jesus now recognizes his unique sonship and that his mission on earth will require of him a devotion to God's promises so great that it takes precedence over the closest family ties. He must follow his calling, even if it brings pain and misunderstanding, even if it costs him, even if nobody else gets it. That, my friends, is sometimes the cost of discipleship. I wonder if you remember the story of Jesus when he was speaking um, to a bunch of people in Matthew 12. There's a story where he's in a house and uh, he's given, you know, a teaching to a large group of people. And his mom and his brothers are outside. And they're like, hey, tell Jesus we want to talk to him. Can you send him out? Again, it's, it's Mary and his siblings. This is Matthew 12, verses 26 through 50. And do you remember what Jesus said in that situation? He says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? He said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. 
That's radical. You know, we, we can read these words and just kind of go on to the next song, if you will. That's radical. He didn't, he didn't disown his family. Again, this is less a rejection of his family and more an affirmation of his unwavering commitment to his heavenly father and his mission. Following God sometimes does mean we say, here are my father and brother. Here are my sisters. Here are my people. Jesus is not about his own desires. He's not about his own passions or goals. He is not interested in wealth or earthly power. He's not interested in political office. He is not seeking pleasure or comfort or influence. Jesus is all in for his heavenly Father's will in every situation. He has a total, unwavering, ceaseless commitment to do that which pleases his Father in every moment, no matter the cost. Jesus' commitment to his Father never wanes, falters or weakens it is not based on circumstances but on his love and his union with the father and here in luke chapter 2 even as a 12 year old boy his total commitment means he was lost for three days swept up in his need to be in the temple learning and studying it's interesting though that his life is bookended by two times he was lost for three days here as a child And we know there's another time, not many years from now, when Jesus' commitment to his Father's mission on earth means he's lost for three days in the grave. Lost to death. Lost on behalf of those who are dead in their sins and trespasses in order that he may save those whom the Father has given him. That's us, guys. That's the mission. That's the mission that Jesus says, I'll leave mother behind. I'll leave friends behind. I'll leave all this behind because I'm all in for my Father to go and redeem those under the curse of the law whom the Father is giving me. This Jesus, this Jesus puts the mission of his Father above everything. This Jesus gives everything for his Father and for his will. You know what that means for us? This Jesus, this is one we can trust. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word that teaches us. We thank you that you are so gracious to us in every moment. And you sent your son, born of Mary, born under the law to redeem those like us who were under the curse of the law when the fullness of time came and it was your plan from the beginning father we thank you for the wisdom of your plan we thank you for for the goodness and perseverance of your son we thank you for him being like us in every way except sinless in order that he might be our savior our redeemer father may we take this knowledge this this these facts about jesus that we learn and may they become something useful in our life and spur us on to trust jesus more to live for him more to love him more Father, do this work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.